Hello, hello, hello. This is Chris and Eric's Spooky Adventure. I'm Chris. I am Eric. Happy Halloween. This is the last episode of Spooktober, and it is your pick. So what horrifying tale have you chosen to wrap up our horror and monster month? The adaptation of Stephen King's Dark Tower, um, specifically just the first two issues of The Gunslinger Born, which is going to be the easiest way to find this now. I think the best way of finding this is going to a used bookstore that sells comics and just finding the collection. I guess the prerequisite statement of you're the king head, I am not, you've read damn near all his shit. I've read a majority. I still have some huge gaps. I've not read anything he's written in like the last six years. When did 112363, whenever that came out, I think that was like the last one I have read as it came out or Revival. I read Revival. I don't know. Wiki it. But your, like, King reading has included specifically a lot of the Dark Tower, right? Uh, yeah, just about everything, unless he's done something new that he hasn't mentioned is connected to the Dark Tower. Dark Tower and everything connected to it, directly and indirectly, pretty much, I have read. So the deal of these comics, from my understanding, is... Like, it's not just a straight up, we're taking the Dark Tower and doing a straight adaption, like starting the way that the first Dark Tower starts, but that it's doing like a mix at this point of like adapting some stuff, but presenting it in a different way. So for some reason, they decided to start this series off by adapting the flashback section of the fourth novel, Wizard and Glass. So I guess, spoilers for Wizard and Glass, the fourth Dark Tower novel, as well as spoilers for these comics. I don't mind a, like, non-conventional adaptation choice, if anything, that's kind of cool. I suppose it sort of makes sense of, like, oh, we're introducing this story in a new context, and people might, as the way I literally did, just be reading this, so we're gonna introduce the hero at his start. It worked well enough for me. Like, I never felt like I didn't know what was happening. Yeah, it's a little bit like starting with Wolverine Origins, but not in as bad a way as I make that sound by making that comparison. But yeah, the first seven issues of this series adapts just stuff that Stephen King wrote in the fourth book. And then the next however many to till they start doing stuff that's titled, subtitled to The Gunslinger, which is partially adapting the first book and partially adapting like different short stories that Stephen King has written that tie into this character but everything after the first seven issues is just adapting things that Stephen King said happened but we've never actually had Stephen King write a narrative about it like Stephen King's like and then this happened and you're like okay and that's it like, the character's like, oh, and then the city fell, and the country was destroyed, and all my friends died, and I killed my mother by accident. Okay. Theoretically, that sounds cool. Like, you know, anytime something gets translated into another medium, it's impossible to just do a strict one-to-one conversion and have it be all of things that the original is, because just mediums are different. So the idea of just sort of saying, fuck it, we're gonna do something new-ish, or just presented in a different way sounds cool enough to me. I think I like the decision, but I will say the way they 
open the comic I don't like. Yeah, so we talked a bit before recording, as we always do, but something that I take it that you picked up on that I did not is the way that they open with narration that, am I correct, you said it like, they use the opening narration from the book, but that's not what they start with. Like, they do, they make up new shit before direct quotes, is that right? Yeah, so, um, quick creator roll call here, just because I I have some very specific criticisms, and I want to make sure I attribute them to the right person, because I have a lot of problems with this person already, so this is going to be fun for me. Creative director, executive director Stephen King. Plotting and consultation is Robin Firth, who is like the preeminent Dark Tower scholar, I guess. He's written like several books that are about the law, which means he's thought about the law a heck of a lot more than Stephen King ever has. Which I say with affection, one of the fun things about Dark Tower is it is a massive law-heavy tome that Stephen King has written entirely on the fly over the course of like 35 years. (laughs) See, now that just sounds like a recipe for things being weirder and more fun. Like, I don't want the creator of a piece of art to be thinking about what the fan wiki is going to be looking like. I would rather see his vibes on the page. It's pure vibes. Like, he, he he's actively just sort of changes things between books. He has no idea how, like, cliffhanger endings to books he does are going to resolve. And he'll just wait ten years before he has an idea to keep going, and then he'll just sort of keep going. I mean, he's done now. He's been done for a while. He nearly died, and then got scared that he would die without finishing it, so he forced himself to finish. So the last three books, which he did all in a row, are really fucking weird, because he was just going in a way that Stephen King doesn't normally do that. Like, his actual process of doing it would have been different and felt different than I take it. Yeah, I imagine it would have taken another 20 years just because he only does it when he has an idea, and in this case he felt he had to finish them, so he just sort of forced some ideas out. Anyway, yeah, so that's Robin Firth. The script, however, is by Peter David. Uh, I believe it is the official policy of this podcast to say fuck you, Peter David. Yeah, if you are one of our four listeners and you don't know who Peter David is, which... I know Trevor probably doesn't know, and Trevor's just about the only one listening to this. Maybe Shannon knows. Shannon, do you know Peter David? She does now. So Trevor, (laughs) directly to you, Peter David is just a long time, primarily known for his Marvel work, but I don't know what his extensive bibliography is at other companies. Oh, there's a lot of stuff that he's fucked up at DC. Okay, but I would argue... In terms of his work, probably most known for a 90s run on X-Factor. Hulk. Also Hulk, yes. He's like the definitive Hulk writer, almost. Yeah, definitely, at least in terms of like later beyond the creators, definitely one of the big runs. You're right, that definitely needs mentioning. But at this point, within certain circles of the internet, which is to say X-Men Twitter, he's less even known at this point for his work and more for an incredibly racist, specifically anti-Romani rant that he did at a convention a few years ago. Uh, yeah, New York Comic Con in 2016, I was there, and he was unfucking hinged Essentially, the gist was that someone, I'm assuming like in the Q&A portion or whatever. Yeah, it was a, um, it was a LGBTQ 
representation in the X-Men panel. So they had, like, Peter David up there because he won a fucking GLAAD award for Shatterstar and Richter making out, and Rain being incredibly homophobic at them. (laughs) While that scene is funny, and I'm not mad at it, I will also say, official POV of the podcast, they just give GLAAD awards to anybody. Everybody just fucking has those. I'm pretty sure they gave fucking Katy Perry one after her homophobic <laughs> lesbian kiss song, so... Um, so, and then, um, a very nice man asked about Romani representation in Marvel, which is hilariously abysmal, because it basically consists of Scarlet Witch, who spends most of her time in the 2000s insane and, like, genociding people, and when she isn't being horribly like treated like that she's still like a very stereotypical here's our magical romani character character quicksilver who is a dick and her twin brother and dr doom (laughs) who is a tyrannical dictator so yeah but yeah the person just asked about romani characters at marvel and peter david just I don't need to do all the specifics, but just went on a really unhinged racist rant about actual Romani people. You and can look it up. They filmed it. Yeah, you can you can find it if you wish. That's really all that Peter David is known for at this point, and he's the man steering this ship, or at least helping sail this ship. So with my deep hatred of Peter David, why are we reading this? Well, because it's drawn by Jay Lee and Richard Eisenhoff, who are just credited as art, because... I mean, Lee is doing pencils, presumably, and Isonov is, like, doing finishes or inks and colors. But also in other issues, Isonov is the only, like, artist working on it. Point is, these two together, dream team. It looks so good. Yeah, like, I'll dive into specific pages as we go, but Jay Lee is one of those artists where it's just, like... It's gorgeous. Yeah, like, I'm trying to even find the ward. Everyone looks like a Dracula. Yeah, everyone looks like a Dracula. It's all very gothy. It's all made to be, like... It's really gothic and, like, Baroque. Yeah, he literally has... There was an edition of Bram Stoker's Dracula that was illustrated by Jay Lee, and it's just that perfect fit. Very heavy inking, just lots of nice black inks on the page that often, like, he knows how to just make look really good and start contrast to these lovely multicolor, like, painted backgrounds we're going to see and talk about throughout. If you haven't seen his work, just Google it, and you'll see why he is famous and well-liked. Feast your eyes. Stunning stuff. We also, to quickly finish out uh, credits, lettering by Chris Eliopoulos. Apologies if I messed it up a little bit. But yeah, with the roll call and Peter David's involvement announced, do you want to talk about this opening? Okay, so one of the the things that the Dark Tower series is like remembered for, if you're a Stephen King head, is the opening lines of the first book really fucking great. The first book just opens the first line of it, which is just like, I don't know how good this is overall. It's an interesting way to open a book. The opening lines are just, the man in black fled across the desert, and the gunslinger followed. And that's your introduction to, like, this whole absolutely insane world that I will explain in a bit. And for some reason, they're not adapting the first book. So in the context of this story, the man in black is not fleeting across the desert. 
and the gunslinger is not following him. For most of this story, the gunslinger is a 16-year-old, 14, 14-year-old kid. This would be the opening of the first book, which is not the story that's being told. So it's weird to open with it. Yeah, because the thing is, we like get the visual and like the two-page spread like of him as an adult, but then we just immediately go back in time to the flashback that the rest of at least these first two issues, however long going forward, actually take place in. The thing is, if you're someone who reads the books, then as soon as you open this book, you're like, oh, they're doing the stuff from the fourth book. They're doing the flashback stuff. Okay. You're not going to open it and be like, oh, no, I need my my adult gunslinger to show up. But also, instead of just having that line, Peter David, Peter fucking David, fills the first page with unnecessary, pointless text that is essentially not adding anything when you have J fucking Lee on art. We also don't, it, it's just, it's just not necessary. This is one of those things where, like, reading the opening, I wasn't really bothered because I didn't have the, say, original versus source text in my mind to compare to. I was just like, okay, here's some moody-ish narration. Okay, it's placed over top these panels of these fucking vultures eating carrion drawn by Jay Lee. So I'm just vibing with the fucking deadly birds and I don't really care what's being said in the background. Well, the thing is, the way it's laid out as well, the way that it's scripted actually hurts the visual storytelling. Because what we see in the first one is the man in black flee- f- fledding? Fle- f- fleeing. Fleeing? Fleeing. Fledding. Fucking hell. Fleeing past the birds eating the carrion. Which should just have the one caption which says the man in black fled across the desert, and that's the only thing that's said on this page. And then the next page, we see the gunslinger stepping into the dried-out bony remains of the carrion. The coloration is different. It's clearly a different time, and clearly a lot of past time has passed because the vultures are gone and all the meat is picked off the bones. Which is telling... And then you would just say here, and the gunslinger followed. And then it would be much more visually clear that what's going on is the gunslinger is quite far behind the man in black. Which is true, that is how the book starts. He's following his trail. And this would be a great way, if you got rid of all of this excess text, to open an adaptation of the first book. But that's not even what you're doing, so I don't know why we did this. Yeah, I can sort of see your point, like I can understand. And like just envisioning it in my head, I'm like, oh, maybe it would have been all the sharper if I had less um, narration over top the J. Lee art. Because you're right that it's not really contributing that much i cannot believe i'm saying this but someone overwrote stephen king someone actually used more words to say the exact same thing than stephen king fucking did but yeah it's just like two pages of that then we get our big dramatic two-page spread this is jay lee drawing adult roland uh yeah gunslinger's name is roland deshane yeah and like it looks good It is, again, kind of like, we don't really need this shot if we're just doing a thing about his childhood. It's like it's immediately followed up by another two-page spread that shows his younger teenage self along with his, like, teen friends. And I guess you could say it's, like, contrasting them, but I feel like we don't need the book to hold our hand and be like, you see the man you know? Here's what he was as a kid. I feel like we don't need 
that sort of like lack of respect for the reader's intelligence. If you're not a book reader, you aren't coming into this with any expectations of who Roland is. And if you are a book reader, you're going to know what bit of the story they're telling as soon as they start telling it, because it's not like this isn't, like, very memorable shit from the books. Yeah. It's, yeah, whatever. (laughs) With regards to our opening shots of the real story, the two-page spread of young Roland, and then there's some of his, like, friends, his peers, his age. Mainly Cuthbert and Cuthbert, Cuthbert, whatever, and Elaine, yeah. And they all have their hawks on their arms. They all, they've all been teaching how to, being taught how to hunt with hawks. With the silly little hats that you make them wear. Yeah, this two-page spread, very nice. As I'll say about most of the J. Lee art throughout, very nice. Isonov as, as well, like, we, the, the combination of the two is really great. Yeah, there's the heavy inking. As we've already mentioned, like, there's just so much of the figures that's in shadow, which, again, as a non-King reader, but just as someone who's aware of King's cultural presence, it makes sense to my idea of what King is, of just, like, we're gonna get this weird fantasy horror world, and the sort of, like, largely shadowy look makes sense. The birds are fucking awesome. As an Animorph stan, I will always appreciate a hawk. There's lots of nice detail and just like the blades of grass. It's very like, it's very natural looking, which I guess brings a question. Regardless of however this world works, you know, and I'm not going in with the book's knowledge. I get the sense of regardless of whether this takes place in the past or the future, the present compared to, you know, a modern contemporary reading, whatever, whenever it came out. I get the sense that it's a not showy sort of future landscape. Like, I get the sense that it's going to be lots of nature and fields and deserts and that sort of barren look. Is that true? So the main visual inspiration for the look of Midworld, I think, is where they are right now. Um, I There's, like, Edgeworld. Yeah, it's Midworld where Roland lives when he's young. But the main visual inspiration for all of Midworld is... Uh, Serge Leon's The Man With No Name trilogy, the Clint Eastwood cowboy movies with, like, the wide shots and the big, like, spread of desert that was shot mostly in Spain, if I remember. That makes sense, yeah. Like, there's definitely a very Western feel in the landscapes and also even just, like, the characters' everyday clothing. Yeah, I think that, like, if you had another artist working on this, it would look like a Western but because Jay Lee is drawing it, it looks like a horror fantasy. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. Like, in terms of what's literally being depicted, this is absolutely a Western setting, but Jay Lee's style is so distinct and gothy that it... It brings the right vibe to it that you kind of need. Yeah, Jay Lee was absolutely... Like, like this art team, both of them together, Lee and Isonov, absolutely the right pick for this, like, world. I can't think of anyone who could have done this better. Yeah. With regards to the world itself, a lot of what we're going to get in these first two issues is, like, rituals of, like, we're gonna see the kids, like, training and being taught and a fucking, like, death match of, like, what's the word for, like, a maturity ritual, rite of passage. Yep. It's gonna give a whole lot of 
we're going to show you what this world and society is like by showing you sort of ritualistic practice more so than super heavy narration and really long text boxes. I think it does a good job as a layperson of just giving me the sense of what this world is like, and I just get the sense it is barren and brutal, I suppose. Yeah, this is kind of the Star Wars prequels of The Dark Tower, in that this is the last time anything was any good at all, and it's still pretty fucking bad. Yeah, it's like we don't open on the characters immediately under attack or anything, but it's very clear that it's a fairly harsh and not especially comfortable world. Um, so the group of young gunslingers, because essentially these are the noble-born children who are going to eventually be... A gunsling is like a knight that looks like a cowboy. That is the easiest way to describe them. And instead of a sword, they have guns. And they do, like, quick shooting the way that they do in those cowboy movies. Are these figures with, like, government-approved status? Like, what exactly is their function societally and in terms of, like, official approval? Roland's dad is, like, in charge of the city. And he's also the head gunslinger. But also other towns will have, like, mayors and shit, and they'll have to negotiate with them. Even though Roland is literally descended from his world's equivalent of King Arthur, Arthur Eld, who is also just basically King Arthur. Okay, so, like, it varies a bit from, like... Region to region, yeah. This barony is what they call it. Roland's dad is in charge of, and then the other barony, Megis, that we see... Um, a little bit later, has, like, a mayor who's in charge of at least the town that we're in. It's never delved that deeply into because that's really just not what Stephen King cares about. What Stephen King cares about is at what point do you become an adult? But regardless, like, they at least, like, have more of a sort of cemented societal acknowledgement. Like, these aren't, like, outlaws, I suppose, is my question. Oh, absolutely the opposite of that. These are Western night cops. Yes, Actual gunslingers are hailed and welcomed by everyone. Um, there's bits in the books where Roland is literally hundreds of years of traveling from his home, and when people realize he's a gunslinger, they get on their knees and bow to him and give him a place to sleep for the night because their ancestors' ancestors' ancestors were, like, helped out by gunslingers. Like, in this world, that is the best thing you can be, according to basically everyone. Okay. And in terms of the best thing you can be, being a gunslinger, plot... We can debate that, because Roland's pretty shitty. Yeah, he's already pretty shitty here, and he's a child. But... He's really interesting, but he's a shithead. Yeah. He's the fucking worst. The main, I think probably fair to say, the main plot point of what happens here is that Roland is... As you already said, um, has the really high up important father, and he's going to go through... Is there a specific name for the test for, like, becoming a gunslinger? Well, we should get into why he does it first. So, um, we see them being taught by Court, who is, like, the guy who teaches all the gunslingers. Um, and the way that you can go from being, uh, what Court calls a maggot, which is just <laughs> the people learning to be gunslingers, is you have to beat Court in a fight. And if you lose, it's either going to be because Court winds up accidentally killing you, or you wind up getting banished because you yielded. And, like, 
there's no lose and keep training option. It's like you have to know for sure when you're ready because yes. if you fail, your life is over, basically. The penalty for over-eagerness is exactly the same as the penalty for failure. A whole sort of know-your-place bitch sort of thing. Yeah. So after this lesson in Hawking, uh, where we get the gunslinger mantra, which is, that's a very much, like, a lot of this dialogue is just pulled right out of the books from, like, what I can remember. Roland is on his way home when Martin Broadcloak, who is a wizard and is the chief advisor to his dad, like, tells him to come in because his mother wants to speak to him, which is just so that he can show off the fact that he's got Roland's mother naked in bed, covered in his love bites. I suppose I'll ask just one clarifying question from you having, like, read fervor and everything. My impression is that the relationship between this man and the mother is consensual, but I guess I want to just confirm that in terms of how... Consensual, the... but really fucked up. Okay, just want to, like, know what I should have in my head in terms of, like, think about how it's framed and everything. She's corrupted by, like, the literal evil magic going on with Martin and his real true master, the Crimson King, who we're gonna see a little bit later, but is, like, the overall big bad of the whole series. I I guess Martin's just really tempting, even though he's also abusive, which we see here, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, this whole thing, this whole plot point, essentially, uh, Roland is going to be really pissed yeah he's gonna be very pissed and he's essentially going to have nothing but really hateful things to say about and to his mother throughout the rest of these issues and it's not that i necessarily think it's badly written because i don't but this is one of the plot points where it's not badly done but there is a certain degree of can straight people come up with something else can they come up with something else <laughs> Roland hates his mother until well after he's accidentally murdered her. Oh, God. There is eventually a sort of posthumous reconciliation. Um, and he deeply, he, he always deeply regrets accidentally killing her. But, you know. Uh, so he breaks down Court's door and demands that he's gonna, like, do the gunslinger fight. Because essentially his absolutely insane plan is... I'm going to become a gunslinger, so they will give me some guns, so I can kill Martin Broadcloak. Which I'll totally just immediately be able to do, just skill-wise, I'll totally be able to do. I mean, yeah, he's really good, is the thing. He is really good. Is he that good, though? Um, he is Rawhide Kid good. You take that back, no <laughs> one's Rawhide Kid good. <laughs> I would love to see the gunslinger fight between Roland and the Rawhide Kid. By the way, genuinely serious, if we're gonna do, like, a weird Marvel crossover, that's the one. But anywho, uh. yeah, this sort of, like, we don't get much of anything with his father until the cliffhanger to issue one, and then he'll be a bit more in issue two, because the whole thing is sort of, like, his father's the head honcho in charge, but my sense was that because of that, he doesn't actually get to see his father very much. Like, his home life seems relatively, what's the word, solitary? Yeah, he doesn't have a close relationship with either of his parents, but he's got a lot of complexes about his relationships with his parents. And I take it probably at least, like, some degree of 
admiration and respect for his father given how much he's like angry at his father or angry at his mother on his father's behalf yeah unless it's just general hatred of women but my impression was it was like he was mad at his mom because of like for his dad he's mad at his mom for his dad um roland is very judgmental of women but he does not inherently hate all women he hates anyone who he feels has violated like the moral code that he follows which is a very weird one and not one that necessarily is like something that works in our world or we'd recognize that's like gunslingers are weird it's an alternate universe that was never our universe but used to be something close to it and then something worse than a nuclear war happened and that's how they've all wound up in this kind of shitty state with like it's a feudal society that much i can say about like the way it's governed okay yeah like we get narration like telling us that some of those other boys are his friends but my sense is that like even when he's with his friends this is the sort of boy who's like very much in his own head and like ready to prove himself due to like the legend of his father and then just life being shit and like my overall impression is just like this is an immature largely a dickwad dude but who is very skilled for his age and very eager to prove himself and makes a very quick snap decision after the whole oh you fucked my mom i'm gonna kill you thing yeah yeah that's a great way to describe roland he's not actually that close to anyone there's people he cares about deeply but he also really cares about not letting them know that my impression is that he is unforgivably evil because he lets his bird die. That yes, is my so main grievance. We should get into this. So um, basically part of the ritual in the battle with court is you can choose your own weapon for the for the duels that they set up. Um, court always picks his stick, which has like a cool knife blade on it. It's the thing he's using when we see him earlier. I imagine this is to give them, like, a chance they know what he's bringing to the table. And he asks Roland what weapon he's picking, and Roland says, Oh, that's that's my business, not yours. Which is the first, like, good decision Court thinks he's made today. Of just not giving your opponent time to prepare for your specific weapon. Yeah, I like Court. He's, he's a very, like, classic drill sergeant character in, like, a good way. While we're on the note of Court and Roland, before we get really fully into the whole uh, ritualistic fight itself, I do want to note that I appreciate the variety that Jay Lee works in his pencils in this book and the variety of body shapes and the people. I think these two are probably the most obvious stark contrast in their battle scene where it's just the two of them with Court being a much heavier body type. And the young Roland isn't a, like, super fit, like, superhero aesthetic sort of, you know, like, our protagonist has to be buff and, like, the type of body that actors starve themselves and go without water for to look like, you know? Like, this is very much a very scrawny kid, you know, like... With it being Jay Lee, we get just like, you know, lots of really dramatic posing. And the thing about, you know, just the various poses throughout is that it shows that, like, this kid doesn't have that much muscle. You know, like, we're talking, you know, not like the most emaciated, weak-looking person you've ever seen. But this is a very, like, 
scrawny, he not... looks like an actual fit 14-year-old. Yes, exactly. Like, this looks like more of a potential to be a real person. And I and appreciate that. Like, yeah, Court's, like, a bit shorter than a lot of the other adults that we see. And he's very broad and tough. And, like, he's clearly someone who, like, does a lot of physical labor, but he still has a gut. Like, it's it's very well, like, executed. Yeah, like, these look more like, I suppose, just more like realistic body types that aren't the sort of just cookie-cutter visual go-to you might see an equivalent comic have in a simpler style of just, you're either real thin, or you're just fat, or you're super buff. Like, these are much more realistic-looking bodies. Yeah, and there's been consideration to, like, what the world that they live in, and, like, the stuff that they do all day, and how that would affect their bodies, and the way that, like, yeah, it's it's really great. Um, so, we mentioned the Hawk, Roland shows up at the fight, and after being given one chance to give up by court, they say, okay, we're gonna do it, and his weapon is David, his Hawk, which clearly surprises court. And he's like, okay, you get, you get one more chance and nope, not going to happen. David is the baddest bitch in this book. Do you know if there's a term, if there is what it is for this sort of mask that the Hawks wear before they take them off to like do their flying and do battle and stuff? I have no fucking clue. It didn't occur to me to do Hawking research before I decided a bunch of Stephen King research to remind myself of all this. It's just fucking cool. It's like, what if you're just imagining you're sort of, I don't know, like military air force person with their gear but what if their hawk had his own matching outfit? Um, so we get a really cool, brutal fight scene where he looses the hawk directly onto Court's face and then comes in, and so the two of them are fighting, and every time that Roland starts to lose the fight a little bit, David comes in and starts attacking Court in the face, ripping one of his ears off and, like, savaging one of his eyes. It's gross, like... And I don't mean that as a bad thing, like, it is very well done... But just like, girl, it's bloody, it's... Jay Lee's the type of artist who often will fit in like a lot of lines, a lot of wrinkles on a face. And we just get caught with this wrinkled up face with all the more lines of just the streams of blood. And like, girl, the shots of the eye damn near being taken out, especially, it is, it is quite a sight. But he's able to grab and kill David. At which point, though, um, Roland's able to take advantage of that and get him down onto his back and force him to yield. Uh, Court specifically, um, I think this is, it's, it's the way that, I mean, again, a lot of these lines, I think, are taken directly from the book. But I will say one nice thing about Peter David here, he's managed to capture the way that these people talk. Because there's like a very specific like style of speech that King sort of cooks up for these characters. I yield, gunslinger. I yield, smiling. You have this day remembered the face of your father and all those who came before him. What a wonder you have done. Uh, because Roland is now, at 14, the youngest gunslinger in history. His dad was the second youngest at 16. Yeah, and that phrase, or iterations of it, remembering the face of your father, or you have forgotten the face of your father, is... Uh, even just in these two issues, a majorly recurring 
concept that I assume is likewise recurring in the books and even though I just get these two issues, I get the sense that it's part of a recurring motif about, like, remembering your ancestors and society and just, like, one's place in history, I suppose. It's about honor. That's the main thing. Behaving honorably. Yeah. And, yeah, he beats the bitch's ass. Unfortunately, he dooms himself to hell because he let his pretty bird die. But he beats the bitch's ass, and he gets to go to the armory and pick out some fucking guns. Um, and Court asks how long it took to train David, and establishing the very common theme for Roland of getting his friends brutally killed in order to get what he wants, he says, I never trained David, I friended him. So, yeah. Rip to David. You deserved better. He deserved a better friend than Roland fucking DeShane. Yeah, and I want to talk about a specific line when David first goes to the armory and... Did I say David again? See, I I wish it was David. I like David more than any of the people here because he's a cool bird. But Roland goes to the armory. He passes up some of his father's guns in lieu of picking up just more sort of standard, less flashy guns for his first time. And there's the lines, For now he will settle for the nickel-plated guns of a first-year gunslinger. He caresses it as he would a woman, save with more love. And again, it's well-written for what it is, but can straight people come up with something else? Can y'all come up with something else other than, I'm a man and I want to fuck a woman, but that's the same as wanting to kill her. I want to kill fuck women. It is a whole thing, like you mentioned earlier, of, like, his lack of respect for women. And we're gonna get, like, shortly after this, he loses his virginity by going down to the brothel or whatever they call it, equivalent. And there's just, like, a lot of lines. Yeah, just, like, linking sex and violence and, like, having more respect for your weapons than women. And, again, this isn't a poorly done example of any of this. But I am simply begging straight people to evolve a better culture. I'm simply begging straight people to come up with something else. Well, see, also, this story, when you read it in the order of the books, winds up in the context of Roland's companions, who he's training as gunslingers, one of whom is a woman who is equally as good as the other two at kicking fucking ass, even though she's also in a wheelchair. Okay. So, like, part of this text is Roland had fucking issues and has fucking issues. And I think elements of that are lost by removing it and making, like, losing the flashback element of this narrative because you don't have the comparison to the present day where you have, for example, with um, Susanna, who he's training, she doesn't remember the face of her father. She remembers the face of her mother, which is like, she's the first woman to get trained to be a gunslinger. But at this point in his life that we're seeing him later in the books, he's down to do that. So it's, yeah. Okay. And like, even just in the context of this comic, like I said, it's not that it's badly done. It's just, I think, I guess, listeners, you can sort of gauge how much this sort of plot line's going to interest you in terms of it is about a fucked up straight boy, <laughs> a fucked up, sad, lonely straight boy. And his journey. Who's about to meet the first love of his life and also get her brutally murdered. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so his dad shows up and tells him that he's forgotten the face of his father. This is, like, still in the brothel. And the poor sex worker just runs the fuck out of there. Yeah, like, his dad specifically, like, pulls a gun on his son and then, like, slaps him across the face with the metal of it. He finds that he's like, you're such a fucking idiot for going for this fucking test. And then he finds out that, like, Roland had just found out about Martin and his mother, which apparently his dad is known for two years. So this has been going on, this thing between Martin and Roland's mother has been going on for at least two years. Martin, by the way, is Randall Flagg, who is the most frequently, like, most Stephen King villains are, like, just in the book they're in, pretty much. Randall Flagg is the main villain of, like, maybe 20 different books. He's a multi-dimensional, like, sorcerer who can change his face and has lived for thousands and thousands of years. He doesn't completely remember where he comes from. The main books, if you want lots about stuff about Flagg to read, are The Stand and Eyes of the Dragon. Eyes of the Dragon is the closest to, like, backstory. I think we get that, and then, like, the later Dark Tower books kind of explain how he got started. But he's a, he's essentially an extra-dimensional chaos bringer that, like, Stephen King is completely obsessed with. And he turns out to be, like, four different people in Roland's backstory, potentially. There's some people who might be Randall Flagg, and we just don't fucking know. Mr. Sinistering his way across the life. That's basically, you know what, he's Mr. Sinister, right down to manipulating the protagonist from a very young age, because he, like, tricked Roland into going for the test. Like, that's why he called Roland in, so Roland would see his mother naked in his bed, is he wanted to piss him off badly enough that he'd go and try and get guns. Because Roland is prophesied to eventually reach the Dark Tower and defeat the Crimson King, his master. So he's gonna try and fuck it up. How well-known are prophecies in this world? Like, is this a hush-hush thing? Is this a, um, Roland, Roland and all his friends know. know? Okay. Roland doesn't know. I don't think his dad knows. Like, it's it's just... I don't actually know what his dad thinks Martin's motivations are for this. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. It's, it's... The Crimson King knows. Off in his land of Discordia, with his... We'll get to that in a bit. Um, so basically his dad is like, well, uh, you're gonna have to go because Martin's gonna fucking kill you if you stick around and, and you are not going to be able to kill him. His dad's just like, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? He's like, okay, you haven't forgotten my face, but you're still a fucking idiot. And then we need to get you out of here. Yeah, let me give you some chores to do and maybe you can work on getting better while you do those. Meanwhile, we cut to Martin Broadcloak in his fucked up little lair, which has like a bunch of maybe heavily or partially decomposed children's bodies hanging from the ceiling on hooks, probably. It sort of works all the better because the narration doesn't specifically tell you. It's just like, that's some sort of dead, fleshy, some sort of humanoid something that's that's evil he's just classically evil like and we've got like a fucking skull hanging on a rope on the other side it's all just i am the evil wizard of the story yeah so the narration establishes he's not just martin he's walter odim the man in black again randall flag is what he's usually known by and if you ever see anyone with the initials rf in a stephen king thing it's this fucker and he's probably secretly behind everything even if they don't tell you there's even like 
in Cell, the one with the, the like, weird zombies, there was a zombie in a red, like, college sweater hoodie thing. A hoodie. With the initials RF on the front. And I'm like, is that Randall Flagg? Is he a cell phone zombie right now? He could be. All right. I would buy Randall Flagg, secret evil leader of the cell phone zombies. Uh, but he magically contacts the Crimson King, the Antichrist, the Lord of Spiders, in Endworld, in Discordia, his realm. How would you describe this first panel appearance of this Crimson King? So this is a splash page, just one single image across the whole thing. This is a strong candidate for best visual page in the issues that we're covering. We're essentially seeing this being, this, like, upright... He's got some human legs. Yeah, like, human-insect-mix sort of visual, most specifically spiders, seems black and hairy, like, all black, like, picture, you know... Just the way that spiders have, like, their fuzz and their tendrils, and then, like, sharpness of claws on the end. He has, like, a bit of a cape draping down off of his back. He is positioned on top of something while he has the remnants of a body. It looks like mainly, I guess, like a torso and, like, an arm, a shoulder, and then some, like, viscera hanging out from the ripped stomach. Of a person on one claw, then like maybe like the head of some sort of animal on another claw, and it's sort of a side shot, so we don't see the face. So really, beyond the fact that it like has humanish legs and like you know looks bipedal, from this angle it looks much more like a monstrous spider design, with very little in the way of actual humanity. We can't see a face. And there's also some orbs that he has levitating on spires, just like levits. What was it? Plinths, maybe? What's a plinth? It's a thing you put stuff on. Normally on top of a column, but I guess they don't have columns because they're floating because magic. Okay, but yeah, he basically has like ominous multicolored spheres on their ominous floating furniture. And it's all against like a nice... Campbell's tomato soup red background. Um, those are specifically the six seeing spheres. They are well, the six see, six seeing spheres of the total of thirteen seeing spheres that make up what's called Merlin's rainbow. That they're they're just a Palantir reference, the Palantir in Lord of the Rings. Here's a seeing orb that I've got. There's thirteen of them, and they're all in different bright colors. Um, the Crimson King's favorite is the black one, known as Black Thirteen, um, and through that he has a brief conversation with Martin, whose face looks different in both panels that he appears in on this page, which is a nice touch, because the guy can shapeshift. Yeah, and like, when we get shots of the face, we get much more human, humanoid head and features than the initial sort of side profile might have given the impression of and and like from you told me off air that like all of this is much more spidery and less human than the original book version but i'm still just like could we have leaned more into the spider he's just much 
he's much cooler and more intimidating when I'm not looking at this human face. Maybe this is just a hyper-specific me thing. I don't know. I like fucking bugs. I don't know what to tell you. I like bugs. Well, his eventual son with Roland, who exists due to a pretty poorly aged magical pregnancy storyline, is a were-spider who spends most of his time in spider form, so maybe you just need to go and hang out with Mordred, which is his son's name. The King Arthur references are not subtle. They've already specifically referenced Arthur Eld in this, and, like, Roland is eventually gonna have an evil kid named Mordred. All of that, regardless, this character is, by and large, a very nice, imposing design, a very good first impression, even if we only cut to him for two pages. It's like, oh, is that the final boss? That That's a good-looking final boss. By the time Roland meets him in the book, he's just like an old man with a long white beard who screams at him and throws stuff at him from a balcony of the Dark Tower. Which, if you notice, we haven't talked about the Dark Tower. Why is this called the Dark Tower yet? Because this is stuff that's before Roland had really, like heard about or decided he was going to try and reach the Dark Tower, so I guess it's irrelevant. Yeah, the Dark Tower is on the obligatory fantasy maps at the very beginning, but otherwise we do not talk about or go to the Dark Tower. Also, like, two of those maps are also irrelevant to this and everything in this, because at no point are they going to reach Discordia or Kaya Bryn Sturgis, things from the very last of the books, which this is very far from chronologically. Anyway, um, some, like, they look like actual policemen show up to arrest Martin, um, after his little Skype call of the Crimson King is over, and Martin turns them into little dogs, who look adorable, and draws a door with some chalk, and then goes through the new magical glowing door he just created, out of the story, and into... As I said, many other Stephen King stories, but also he'll be back. He always comes back. Meanwhile, however, Roland is getting ready with some of his friends to... Wait, right? He's not going off alone, right? There's Yeah, the other yeah. so he goes off with Kufba and Elaine. Um, basically, they're going to go and try and get horses to help them fight. There's, there's a civil war happening. This guy named John Farson is leading a supposed people's rebellion against the, like, essentially feudal system that exists. Farson is also a servant of the Crimson King and is actually just, like, an insane, like, evil piece of shit who wants to become dictator, and he's just, like, using populist language to get what he wants, exploiting the very obvious existing problems with this system. Yeah, I mean, we can debate the fact that the characters are, like, well, we need to go off and help make sure we defend feudalism properly, but I guess it's better than, what if we just mass-murdered everyone because I feel like it? Yeah, like, even more than, like, the details of what he's actually doing, the main thing about this scene that sticks out to me is just, there's people watching everyone off as they leave, including Roland's mother, who's kind of, like, keeping a distance, and... Roland says, My father's face I shall always remember. Yours I shall strive to forget. Just so you know, really hates his mom. That's a big through line. We get two pages that are kind of irrelevant to the rest of these first two issues. It's introducing a villain for later in this story. 
Yeah, I mean, we're just doing the first two issues because if you can, we've been recorded for an hour and we're not through two issues because there's just kind of a lot to discuss. Like, a lot happens. Yeah, this is where you really feel like it's transitioning and really opening up into the larger story because this is effectively where what feels like a prologue is over to me. You know, of like the ritual and everything of this is his life pre-gunslinger you know, as sort of the base point that everything's going to clearly branch off from. Yeah, this is Roland's coming-of-age story, which, like, Stephen King is mostly interested in, like, three things, which is addiction, coming-of-age, and small towns with dark secrets. So, Roland is coming-of-age, he does not yet have his addiction to questing for the Dark Tower, but he is about to go to a small town with some dark secrets. Yeah... I love the Stephen King bingo game. It's great. It's one of the best things about reading Stephen King. Because you're like, alright, alright, what are we going to get this time? Is the protagonist a writer? Does he live in Maine? Or, depending on the year, Colorado. There's a chunk where it's all Colorado, because guess where Stephen King lived for a little while? I, I respect an artist who knows what they're interested in and just keeps doing that. It's great. Yeah. No, I, I absolutely zero complaints. Um... We get just, like, a brief scene where, again, this is sort of set up for later, this character's gonna come back and some of the information he learns will be important, but he's a former apprentice gunslinger who got banished and is now addicted to, they call it weed, it is not our weed, it is something else that makes you green and, like, really fucks you up in the head on, like, a permanent basis. So there's the addiction for you. There's, there's some addiction right there. Yeah, so our main character has not found his addiction. Uh, but we do have someone who is addicted showing up, just to remind us. So the, the new villain that got introduced is um, Jonas. He is also, like, he used to be trained to be a gunslinger. And then he got banished for being awful. Jonas is, like, the evil Roland, essentially. And he works for Farson and leading the rebellion, and he gives one of the 13 orbs I mentioned earlier, the spheres in Merlin's rainbow, to this little old lady called Rhea of the Kuos. This is the grapefruit, the pink one. They call it the grapefruit a lot. This little old lady is so excited to get this abs- this, like, little all-seeing orb that, um, she feels a strange heat and unaccustomed moisture in that barren creek. I can unfortunately tell you this is a detail from the books. Yeah. So some of these issues with women are also Stephen King's. I cannot fathom what positions one, what draws one to write those lines. Well, she's going to wind up addicted to this sphere. Okay, but... <laughs> When we write about women having addictions, do we usually write things like, she was an alcoholic, you know, just seeing that beer bottle really got her wet. Like, the the fact that it's specifically also doing a, like, age sort of gag of, like, this dried up old crone, she got real wet. I'm just like, why is this here? Like, it's funny because it's ridiculous, but why is this here? Yeah, I need to reread the book, frankly, to, to be able to answer that one. But it's here. Um, yeah, 
she's the Wicked Witch of the West, essentially, because, and again, this is sort of lost because this isn't couched in the, the material, and so, like, the flashback element of this storyline is lost, but there's a lot of Wizard, the Oz, Wizard of Oz references in the book version of this, up to and including Emerald City just fucking existing and being in Topeka, Kansas. Huh. Yes. And Martin slash Roland, uh, slash, uh, Martin slash Randall Flag is the Wizard of Oz, but, huh. like, evil. And Rhea is the Wicked Witch of the West. She's in the Baronies in the West. She has the little glowing orb that she can see stuff happening in, and she's the wicked old lady who really, really hates the new character we're being introduced here, Susan, because she's young and beautiful, and Rhea is, like, ancient. I think she's at least a hundred. Yeah, like, this is... She's powered by, like, dark magic and evil. Yeah, and, like, visually, she is the embodiment of that sort of, like, short and super wrinkled-looking old woman. Yeah, she is the definition of the words hateful old crone. Yeah, this is a crone, and this is very specifically a crone. Um, so Susan is here because... This plot line is just so awful on so, like, it, it knows it's awful. Like, the point is that this is an awful situation to be in. But essentially, her dad died. And so in order to keep, like, their lands and not get bankrupted, her aunt is selling her to the mayor to have sex with. Like, ostensibly, it's so that he can have a kid because his wife is barren. But, like, the mayor just wants to get his hands on her and is willing and her aunt is just happy to do it and be involved and susan's now just in the situation where she has to go and get with this disgusting old freak of a man and worst of all she has to go to the edge of town to the old like magic wise woman who is hateful old crone raya of kuos so that she can double check that she's a virgin first as i said earlier this series is telling us what this world is like through all of these societal rituals and that includes the fucking old tradition of how do we quote unquote make sure that a woman is a virgin and yeah yeah uh ria is just as disgusting as you would imagine she would be um and she briefly hypnotizes susan to do something specifically after he takes your virginity because she hates everyone, including all the people she works with, and she wants to mess with them. We're gonna see what that is later, but Susan runs away and basically is lamenting her situation and, like, collapses in tears because, again, she's just in this absolutely horrific situation. When on horseback, coming to the Barony of Medjus, specifically to meet with her dad, who he's found out is dead, because, like, her dad, by the way, was the ally that he was gonna go and meet and arrange to get horses and, like, investigate stuff with. Um, Roland arrives on horseback. The end of our first two issues. Anyway, these two are gonna hook up. I feel like that's kind of obvious just from the framing of it. And I did say earlier this is, like, Roland's first love story. And, yes, unfortunately, Susan is going to die horribly. Because she succumbs to the same syndrome. But all of Roland's friends eventually succumb to, bar literally one, horrible death. And that one, by the way, is because she leaves before she can get her killed. I guess that's a spoiler. Sorry, everyone, I just spoiled Book 7 of The Dark Tower. 
It's fine. Y'all king heads. I feel like anyone who cares enough about worrying about being spoiled on a Stephen King book read it the day of release, so... Uh, that book's been out for nearly 20 years. It's like 18 years old at this point. I would say go get caught up, but frankly, it's a lot of fucking reading. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that's that's the end of the issue. Um, I don't know, is there anything else you wanted to talk about? Um, I think we hit on, like, my main notes, um... As a non-Stephen King fan, I enjoyed reading these. Um, I thought these issues were pretty good. I certainly think, of course, you know, Jay Lee and Eisenhoff. Eisenhoff? You know what? I keep thinking I'm pronouncing it wrong. It's Eisenovi? Eisenov? Apologies, I've never heard your name said out loud. If I've been consistently getting it wrong, feel free to tell me how mad you are about it. I'll accept that. But, yeah, just the art team does such a great job. Like, I don't want to necessarily say elevating in the sense that, like, they make something, you know, bad or so-so good. Because I think the writing is solidly done as well. But the art just takes it to a place where, you know, artist matters and it especially matters when you have them popping the fuck off the way that jay lee always does and it feels like a very appropriate matching of style to the content and it's always visually exciting to look at and the inks are so nice i just really love the way jay lee inks his work um and it always looks really good against the coloration and there's just, like, a sheer amount of detail and, like, wrinkle and texture that Jay Lee works in that always makes that always makes things feel very, like, grounded in a way that really works for this sort of downtrodden Western look. And, you know, it feels very oppressive and, like, post-end-of-the-world. And, yeah, like, I'm not particularly all that interested in the story on its own merits of what it's doing thematically. It's not doing any of what it's doing badly, you know, I think it is quite competently done, and it's clearly setting more things up for later with what is, you know, the beginning of this version of so many books upon books upon books. You know, like, the themes are what they are, not bad, well enough done, just not my personal jam, but that said, I think the art alone is more than worth a look. Peter David successfully didn't ruin this. And that's all we could have hoped for. <laughs> um, I certainly don't think Peter David would have helped with this story's issues with women. There you go, that's my new hot take. Yeah, no. We can't go on a, a Peter David tangent about the specifics, but... I just think the weirdest thing is doing this and not just starting with, like, adapting The Gunslinger. Because, like, Roland's relationship with Jake would be a great hook. And I don't know why they didn't go with that. It's fine. It's fine. I'll read those comics someday. They're just hard to get your hands on for the second lot because they weren't printed nearly as much as these were. Yeah, the changes are one of those things where I can't really comment because I'm like, oh, as a first-time reader, it seems fine enough to me, but I don't have the context of, like, you know, here's how the presentation of the original material was, like, really affected and changed based on order and all of that. Like, that sort of difference in adaptations is always interesting to me. But I'm sorry that it, I don't know, was weird, was not fully what you would have wanted. It was odd. And then, and then the fact that I have this omnibus where, like, 
fully, aside from the first seven issues, it's, like, expanding on, like, very little stuff. It's it's sort of the new Lord of the Rings TV show that is based mostly on a two-page timeline at the end of Return of the King. Or, um, actually, the new Game of Thrones show that is mostly based on, like, a chapter or two of a fictional, like, in-universe history book. Yeah. It was still fun, though, I thought. I like these, though. And that's a nice difference from Sin's past in that second Bionicle story. (laughs) (laughs) This is, you were doing some good work on your redeeming yourself this week with these comics. Well, I picked a Jay Lee book. That goes a very long way in my graces. Should we go ahead and announce next week's topic? Yeah, what, what am I reading next week? I actually don't know yet, which is unusual. Yes, so listeners, usually Chris and I have a good idea of what we're going to be covering ahead of time. You know, we talk at each other about all the different things we're reading and what we might pick and yada yada. But I've been very specifically keeping Chris out of the loop because this topic is a surprise because I have a gift for you. When I say gift, I mean this is not for you to borrow. This is for you to own. This is a gift, G-I-F-T. Because I have the gift of the very first volume of your manga collection. We will be reading Dinosaur Sanctuary Volume 1. This is how I get you into manga. We're going to be talking about dinosaurs. Oh, this looks fantastic. Thank you. I hope so. I hope it's good. Wait, have you not read it yet? (laughs) This is also a first in that we'll be reading something neither of us has read before we picked it. I have not read it yet. I just saw the dinosaur (laughs) manga said, I'm going to get that for you. And there we are. Oh, look, feathers. Okay, I approve of this. This is automatically good. This dinosaur has feathers. That's a good start. And he's sitting weird. I like a dinosaur that sits weird. And that's clearly a Tyrannosaurus. Is that feathered or that's not accurate? Oh, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna split hairs. I'm not gonna split hairs. Or rather, we will mayhaps be splitting hairs next week. (laughs) I will be splitting many a hair. We'll see how many, how bad. We'll see if there's hopefully still some joy among the ones that are feathered and flipping through. Some of them are very weird looking. Ooh, Dinochirus! Don't know what that is, but yay. It's, uh, it's that one. He looks weird. He looks cool. Dinochirus is one of my favorites. That looks actually very accurate. Okay, this is excellent. All right, there we go. <laughs> I I hope that listeners, I've just been telling Chris, just, it'll be a surprise in no other detail. So I hope that this surprise looks promising for you. That looks very promising. This is going to be the antidote to having seen Jurassic World Dominion recently, which was painful. Is Chris Pratt still in those? Yes. So it is quite painful. He did the hand thing so many times. Great. Like a dinosaur's trying to kill him. He's like, I'm lifting up my hand. You can't kill me. And I'm like, that is a thing you did, like, with the one raptor you trained to respond to that. That is not a thing that works on every dinosaur. And I feel like this incredibly poorly written, poorly acted character would probably know this. But I guess the hand thing became a meme because of the trailer so now he just has to do it all the time and now we're making alan fucking grant do it god tune in next week for more of this yeah tune in next week for hopefully a more fun better dinosaur story 
Like I said, I haven't even read this, but I think it looks cute. It looks like a lot of fun. I'm saying that because I'm, oh, Dilophosaurus. I hope we get a lot of that. I hope it's mostly joyous <laughs> like this. Like, and on this page, we have a this. And on this page, we have a this. The fact that they're accurate enough for you to immediately shout out a species name is probably a good sign. Yeah, I mean, they're picking very good species because they're picking ones that are very distinct and, like, have really recognizable features, and then they're emphasizing those in the design, which is a problem with, like, the Jurassic World movies, is they look at all these really interesting species and, like, yes, but what if it looked like a crocodile on two legs? Yeah. And then they ruin it. We got... Look at that! Oh, this is an antidote to Jurassic World Dominion. That's a Giganotosaurus! That was, like, the big bad one in that, and it looked like a giant crocodile, and it looked like shit. But does it look good here? Oh, it looks great here. Oh, good. Oh my god, they're actually demonstrating the differences between its skull and Tyrannosaurus Rex's skull. This is the best comic I've ever read. Have I succeeded in finding a manga series that you are truly gonna want to follow yourself? Uh, if this is an even halfway decent narrative, like literally if this is even basic competent writing, oh my god, that's a Spinosaurus. Um, I have a feeling we might be changing your life. <laughs> we got here what is this what is that do they say trying to tell what the small bird ones are can sometimes be tricky because so much depends on how you decide to do the feathers i mean honestly this is probably just meant to be velociraptor you know it's the right size i think it is velociraptor and by the right size i mean real small because velociraptor is about a third of the size you're thinking of right now general audience this velociraptor is cute oh no it's troodon Ooh, some of these panels are real weird i like it like, real beaky-looking. Like, these are clearly bird monsters. Anyway, Stephen King! <laughs> yeah, thank you for listening. Next week is Dinosaur Sanctuary Volume 1, Itaru Kinoshida. This is from Seven Seas. Fairly recent release, so hopefully your local Barnes & Noble or whatever shop will have some in stock, and you'll be able to join us in looking at weird dinosaurs next week. All dinosaurs looked weird. But yeah, thank you all and bye. Press, press, and, 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 and.